Well, good evening. Everybody's sick. It's really cold. It's uh, one of those winter days where you kind of want to go home and drink tea and just sit. Um, or hot chocolate, if that's your thing. Um, if you're feeling that way and you're thinking, man, I really don't want to hear David preach. I'd rather do that. Well, I, I kind of feel that way too. So you're not alone. So I, I, I promise I won't keep you forever. Um, but uh, what we're going to be talking about tonight, we're in our, in our series, uh, When People Are Big and God is Small. Uh, what we're going to be talking about tonight is it's one of those subjects that uh, you get to in, in, in either teaching or preaching, and you feel, you feel like you're so unqualified to talk about it that uh, the, the way I feel right now, no, no matter how much uh, effort I put into getting across uh, what we're going to talk about this evening, I feel like it's just going to be underwhelming in light of the subject matter. Um, and I have to, <laughs> I guess I just have to be at peace with that. But we're talking about knowing God, knowing God. How do you talk about that for 35 minutes and feel like you've done adequately? I don't, I don't know. So we're not, it's not going to be a home run type sermon. I'm just trying to get on base. And really what my desire is, is tonight, you should see it on the screen in, in just a second. Uh, what my desire is tonight uh, is to, again, invite you on this journey, not, not to feel like we've arrived at a destination, but invite you into a new way of, of thinking. Uh, Proverbs chapter 9. Let's, that we've been typically going to a different proverb, but tonight I want to go to Proverbs chapter 9 and look at verse 10. And when we get there, I think you'll understand... Uh, why I picked this verse to start us off. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The Bible says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we've been talking about the fear of the Lord a lot. We usually start off with the fear, uh, the fear of man is like a snare, right? So he says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But then notice this next statement. It's kind of like a... A, a parallel statement that goes along with it. And the knowledge of the holy is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. In our, in our series on the fear of man, we've, we've brought up two major principles again and again, and I want us to say them uh, together. They should be in your handout as well if you've got a handout. Uh, here's, the, here's the first major principle that we've learned. Say it with me. We fear man because we do not fear God or do not fear God enough. Here's the second principle. God must be bigger to you than people are or people will control your life. Now, during the study, we've defined the fear of the Lord in this way. It's reverent submission that leads to obedience trust and worship. I have a simpler definition that I want to give you tonight, and I think it ties in real well with what we're going to be talking about, and it's this. The fear of the Lord is a mindset toward God that puts all other competing fears into perspective. I want to read it again. The fear of the Lord is a mindset that we have toward God, not that gets rid of all our other fears. I wish it did. Not that abolishes all our other fears. No. A mindset toward God that puts all other competing fears in their proper place. 
I don't want to create false expectations out of this series. <laughs> Even if you uh, fill out the handouts and do the exercises and, you know, listen to the sermons again on, our, on the podcast, you will still deal with fearing people. You will be afraid of people harming you. You'll be afraid of people betraying you. You'll have the fear of people gossiping about you. And we're going to struggle with um, the, the temptation to be controlled by how other people think about us until we're with the Lord, okay? But here's what we can do as we grow in Christ. While we can't maybe abolish these fears completely, we can keep them in their place by growing in the fear of the Lord, by growing in how we fear him. But, but fearing God is put next to something in this verse that we've not really addressed much in this series. Fearing God is paralleled with knowing God, the knowledge of the holy, referring to God himself, the holy one. Did you see it in the verse we read? Solomon says that the fear of God equals wisdom and that the knowledge of God equals understanding. I don't want to spend a lot of time on the differences between wisdom or understanding. They're, they're, in, they're intended to be very similar. So in other words, it's like this, one goes with the other. If you want to grow in the fear of the Lord, and I hope that, uh, that this, the, the teaching we've been doing on, on, on our midweek service has encouraged you toward that end. If you want to grow in the fear of the Lord, your fear of the Lord will never be greater than your knowledge of the Lord. So if you want to grow in fearing him and this right attitude you have toward him, if you want a God that's big enough to keep your other fears in their proper place, you're going to have to grow in the knowledge of God. As your knowledge of God develops, your fear of God will develop as well. Here's how I put it. It's on the slide. Okay, this is the, the really, if you could take away one thing from tonight, I would love for it to be this truth. The more we fear the Lord, the more we will want to press on to know him. And the more we press on to know him, the more we will fear him. And then it could really just, you could start the cycle over, couldn't you? The more we fear the Lord, the more we will press on to know him. Why? Because once we get this vision of God, this understanding of who he is, the God that is no longer too small, but the God that actually reveals himself in scripture, we're going to have a desire to push into our relationship with him so our knowledge of him grows. But here's what we find out. And if you're a growing Christian in this area, here is what you've already discovered. As our knowledge of the Lord grows, as it deepens and broadens, it can broaden by learning new things about God. It can also deepen by learning, uh, taking things you already knew about God, but then letting those principles actually change your life. There's a, you know, there's a difference between knowing God is everywhere and then growing in the awareness of how that should change how you live, both in suffering or in temptation. So it broadens when we learn more things about God, and it deepens when we take what we know about God and put it into practice. But as we do that, we will fear him more because he will be bigger in our eyes. And as we fear him more, we will want to know even more about him. Look at Jeremiah chapter 9, uh, Jeremiah chapter 9, and uh, verse, verse 23 and 24. Solomon is not the only one that addresses this important theme of, of knowing God. 
The prophet says in Jeremiah 9, beginning in verse 23, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Now just to be clear, we're not talking about trying to become more of an intellectual although that's not a bad thing. Jeremiah says, don't let the wise glory in their wisdom. This is, it's, this is not just about gathering more facts or having more information or being smarter if you get into arguments about God or theology. No, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. The, the, what Jeremiah is describing is not just wisdom, and it's not only that, it is something better than power and money. Now, if you take wisdom, power, and money... And think about how our culture uh, puts a lot of weight on those commodities. Most people would think there's, there's not much better in life than having one of those things. But God says there's something better. He says those things are not worth glorying in or those things are not worth boasting in compared to the person who understands and knows me. The person who's growing in the knowledge of God. It's better, it's not just better than those three things. Those three things, you have no reason to boast in them if you have the knowledge of God. That's how precious this is. It's been said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, a, a lot of Christians don't necessarily see this as a vital, as a vital thing. They understand that after they get saved, it's good to go to church, it's good to do certain things things and certain activities. It's good to stop doing other things that are bad. But the way a lot of believers think, at least the ones that I've met, the way a lot of believers think is something like this. Well, you know, pursuing the knowledge of God, that's just something for a a type of personality or for people in ministry or for preachers or for Sunday school teachers. That's kind of their lane. That's not really my lane. Well, according to the word that God gave Jeremiah it can be anyone's lane. Anyone can glory in this, anyone can have this, can grow in this knowledge of God. And according to what Solomon says, it goes with the fear of the Lord. So if you want to grow in the fear of the Lord, grow in the knowledge of God. A lot of times we're interested in maybe how God can give us some practical advice for life. That's what some of you may be thinking signing up for this, this parenting book discussion. You think, okay, I'm going to come to these discussions, and I'm going to read this book, um, and I'm going to get some really cool techniques for how to deal with my kids. Now, if you've read any of Paul Tripp's books, you know that's not really his main intention. Now, he does have some, some really helpful, practical ideas, but what you'll learn if you go through this book, and I hope you do, all of his practical ideas are birthed out of a right understanding of God and what God has revealed about himself in his word. So yeah, there are some really good practical implications to that, but he begins with the knowledge of God. So if you come to, if you come to Pastor Tyler and say, I want counseling, I want God to fix my family, um, well, it, it turns out he may end up talking to you about God. 
See, we, we can only, we don't come to God as, as a kind of advice dispensing machine. Where we put a quarter in by coming to a church service, he gets us this really cool idea or this trick or some sort of, you know, little tool that we get from our little handout and then we're going to use that and fix our lives. God is more interested in telling us about himself and change will come out of what we learn. I think the best example of this is actually given in the Ten Commandments. Nothing is more practical or relevant to our behavior and how we live than the Ten Commandments. It addresses the family, adultery, theft, lying, and greed, but that's not how the list begins, is it? If you go to the list in Exodus 20, it begins with this. The Lord announces that he is the one Lord who has saved them out of Egypt. Go look at the list of the Ten Commandments. I don't have it on the screen, but you can read it yourself. He doesn't tell them, don't have any other gods before me. That comes next. He first announces who he is. And even then, if you look at the order of the Ten Commandments, before they're told to respect family and life and marriage, before they're told not to covet the first couple of command, the first several commandments actually have to do with their relationship with God. Not making a, a false image of him, not worshiping other things beside him. It was the knowledge of God that was first and character came later. Now, uh, look, at, look at Mark chapter 12. We see the same, the same uh, line of thinking in Jesus' own teaching. Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus doesn't say Love God and love others, does he? Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. Hold up a second. Jesus doesn't tell him it begins with loving God. Jesus tells him it begins with this announcement of who God is. And if this is the God you know, this one Lord, well, then this is the God that you can love with all of your heart and mind and soul. Knowing God precedes loving God, and loving God precedes loving others. Do you see what Jesus inserts before this command? This statement about who God is shows us that the knowledge of God is where everything begins. This is where growth begins. It's even where fearing the Lord begins. Because we don't even have a right idea of who God is, and why we should fear him in the first place if we don't have the truth about him. Now remember, we're mirrors, not cups. We don't exist just for other people to meet our needs. We exist to be in a relationship with God and then to take God's character and reflect it and to show it to other people. We cannot treat others rightly if we don't relate to God properly, and we can't relate to God properly if we don't know him. And I, let me add it like this for our series. We won't fear God properly if we don't know him deeply. And where our knowledge of God is weak and superficial and lacking growth, our fear of God will not be able to sustain us during the difficult times in life when people are really vying to control us. J.I. Packer writes that knowing God's the most practical thing we can engage in. He gives an illustration that's just a, a really beautiful way to imagine this. Or maybe a tragic way to imagine this, really. He, uh, Packer says, as it would be cruel to an Amazonian tribesman to fly him to London, drop him down in the middle without an explanation, defend for himself, 
So we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and life in it is a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. You see, more than anything, not just according to Packer, but according to Jesus, we desperately need to, to know God. And if you, if you have been saved, if you have a relationship with God, if you do know God, we desperately need to grow in our knowledge of God. That is our most important need. Now, back to the logic of Proverbs 9.10. Fearing God equals wisdom. Knowing God equals understanding. The more we fear the Lord, the more we will want to press on to know him. And the more we press on to know him, the more we will fear him. A few important principles to help us. Uh, these are kind of like uh, hooks that I, I want to hang my thoughts on for this session. Uh, and you'll see them in your, in your handout. But the, the first principle we need to know is this. We need God to reveal himself to us. We need God to reveal himself to us. For us to know anything about God at all, there must be action on his part. Revelation. This is not just simply a, a word for... Um, getting some surprising vision. But, but biblically, it means this. Revelation is God's mission to reveal something about himself that we need to know in order to live. That's revelation. There are things that we don't know and that we can't find in ourselves that we know, that we need to know if we're gonna live right in this world. Because as Packer said, it's God's world. He made it. He knows how we can best live here. So it's God's mission to reveal something about himself that we need to know to live. That, that means, essentially, without God's action, we're in the dark. God has to take the initiative. God has to reveal himself. And, and he has. He has. Paul tells the Corinthians that the world, by wisdom, knew not God, even by its own standards of wisdom. The, the very wisest in this world, apart from God, Paul says, can't know him. The very, be the very best human knowledge that we can muster could not take into account who God is. So we can know God then, but not because of our own efforts or not because of our own intellect or not because of our own wisdom. We can only know God if he has revealed himself, and of course he has. He has. He's revealed himself, first of all, in nature by giving us the witness of our conscience and creation our conscience and our creation, the heart within that witnesses to him and the starry skies above. This is explained by Paul in Romans where, um, where he says that God is angry with us, with, with humanity in general, with sinners, because we have this knowledge of God. We know he's out there. We know he made us. We, we know at the end of the day that we have to answer to him. But we take that and we push it down. We suppress it. We pretend like it's not there. When you meet people who say they don't know God, the biggest problem is not that they're totally ignorant of God, but the, the problem is they don't know God because they've taken this revelation, this information about it, and they've pushed it deep into their hearts. So God has revealed himself in nature. He's also revealed himself in scripture. And this gives us a little bit more, doesn't it? Because we can look out within in our conscience and we can look out without at creation and know that there is someone behind all this. I feel guilt 
When I have done wrong and there is someone I have to give account to, to to define what is right and wrong. I feel anger or resentment toward others who wrong me and I know they, they have to give an account to someone beyond me and that's the general revelation that we have of God. But scripture tells us a lot more. Scripture tells us who this God is, how exactly things went wrong, and what he has done to make it right and to offer us salvation. Scripture is not even the whole story because God has revealed himself ultimately in the incarnation, in Jesus. That's why the writer of Hebrews says that in these, in these last days, in these last times, the God who spoke to us before has spoken to us again, but this time in Jesus. This is not just another message about God, but, but God himself that has come. And so to know Jesus is to know God and to enter a relationship with God. That's why the ultimate, truest way to know God is to have a relationship with him through Jesus. This is why our mission, as you've heard over and over and over again, and we'll continue to hear over and over and over again, is to help people find and follow Jesus. That's not just because we as some sort of business have determined, well, this is a niche that we can provide, or this is something that makes us unique or special. We passionately believe as Christians that the greatest need everyone on this globe has, and then in particular everyone in liberal Kansas has, is to come into a relationship with God by knowing Jesus. It's not just something that's important to us or that was important to us because our parents passed it down or because it gives us something to have in common with this group of people that we meet with. We genuinely believe it's the most important thing about our lives that we have knowledge of God by knowing Jesus. But just because we have begun to know Jesus, and I hope you have begun to know Jesus, doesn't mean we're growing in the knowledge of God. Just because you've started on the journey doesn't mean you're walking the path. And while it is eternally important that we begin to know God by getting saved, it is also eternally important that we grow in that knowledge and that we make our relationship with God the priority of our lives. Now you think, well, David, I I don't even know why I came to this because I thought you were gonna help us with fearing people or with with insecurity or with frustration or with these difficult relationships that I'm having. And, And you're not even talking about my relationships with other people. That's right, I'm not, not tonight. Because in order to deal with those things, In a biblical way, in order to deal with those problems, yes, that are very real, as a Christian, you have to stop worshiping a God that's too small. You have to start making your knowledge of him a priority. You have to decide that you're going to grow in knowing him. That knowing God is going to be the most important thing you do in life. And I promise you, I promise you, as you do that, it is going to help with those problems you have with other people. We need God to reveal himself. We need God to initiate because we cannot know him on our own. And God has. He has acted. Now, number two, number two here's the second principle, the second hook, if, if you would, to hang our thoughts on tonight. We can never fully understand God. The Bible teaches that while God has revealed some things about himself to us, he is also incomprehensible. This is really exciting, isn't it? No, it's not. David, why are you telling us that God is incomprehensible? You said we should know God, that every Christian should know God. Then you're telling us we can never know anything about God. Well, that shouldn't discourage us from knowing God. 
I'll explain why in just a second, but first I want you to look at Romans 11 where Paul talks about this idea of God being incomprehensible. Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse uh, 33, Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Now, just so you know, I'm not being squishy or compromising with the Bible when I say we can't know everything about God. Paul didn't know everything about God. Neither will we. But notice that doesn't make Paul discouraged. Knowing that God is incomprehensible, knowing as Paul did that he would never know everything about God, that didn't make Paul throw in the towel and say, well, then this whole idea of even having a relationship with God is pointless. No, he ends it with this doxology. He glorifies him. God is the source and the object of all things. See, Paul, uh, God being incomprehensible is not a problem for Paul. For Paul, it's a reason to worship him. It's a reason to worship him. There's no danger of learning too much about God, for we will never run out of fresh discoveries about him. Because that's just how big and how different from us that he is. We can trust him. We know that he's dependable and that he's faithful, so there's no surprises when, he comes to his, when it comes to his promises. But yet, God is also full of mystery, and that's why we fall before him and not ourselves. Now, some might say, again, that this makes knowing God pointless. I think it doesn't make knowing God pointless. Not only would, would Paul echo that, but I, 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 love, um, I love the image that, that C.S. Lewis gives in his book, The Last Battle. So if you're not familiar with the series, it's fine. Um, the, the context is that this is basically just a picture of heaven, okay? And uh, at the very end of The Last Battle, which is the last book in the series, The Chronicles of Narnia, as uh, the characters are all uh, following Aslan into Narnia, or uh, uh, Lewis's metaphor for heaven, they notice that as they go into it and as they explore it, it, uh, it, it just grows and gets bigger. So the more they go into it, the less they know about it. Now, that doesn't make them stop. That'd be a really boring end to the book, wouldn't it be? No, that brings this sense of excitement and adventure. So here's how the book ends. They're going into Narnia saying further up and further in. As they go further up and further in, it gets even bigger. And so what do they do? They go further up and further in. Here is how Paul is responding to God being incomprehensible. Paul realizes, I will never know everything about God. That's because he's God. So I can spend an eternity getting to know him. Here, here's the thing. Heaven will not be boring. Now, if heaven was, was just material things or, or just reuniting with our relatives or friends, eventually heaven would get boring. Now, I know we, we, we don't typically like to say that, but we get bored with people here. Don't you think in the afterlife we'd get bored of them eventually there? But here's why heaven won't be boring, because we have eternity with the God that we don't fully know. It's not like he's so simple that we just sort of figured him out. No, this is wonderful. This is what worship is all about. 
That when, when you come to church on Sunday morning, you can go away from the sermon thinking, about, thinking a thought about God that you just hadn't thought about before. And you can come back Sunday, and because our God, not because the preachers here are gifted, or not because uh, we have a, a great service, although I think we do have a gr- great service here, but you can go away from a, a service about here, uh, from here, thinking about God in such a way you hadn't thought about him before, and that, all of that credit goes to just how incomprehensible God is. You see, growing in the knowledge of God, then, is the greatest adventure on earth, because it can never get boring. Things can get boring things can eventually lose their steam. Even skydiving does. That's why a lot of people that do a lot of skydiving end up getting hooked on drugs because it's so hard to satisfy that thrill over and over again. But knowing God is the one thing in this world that won't let you down because we'll never know everything about him. Number three, even though God, we can't know everything about God, number three, we can know God sufficiently. Here's the good news. God has revealed what we need to know about him. He's revealed what we need to know about him. We're not going to turn there, but in 2 Peter, if you want to read it later, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, Peter gives this list of the basic Christian virtues. And you know where they all begin? The knowledge of God that we have in Jesus. Peter says, because this knowledge belongs to you, because you know God through Christ, because you've been brought into a relationship with him, then you'll be able to add to your faith virtue. And then out of virtual, you'll be able to add all these other things and grow in your character and in your service for the Lord, all because uh, God has revealed himself. The fact that we cannot know God comprehensively shouldn't discourage us because God has revealed what he wants us to know. That means it's available. It's not some sort of secret. It's not in some sort of Gnostic cult or secret society. God's made it understandable in Scripture what his children need to know to follow him and live in his world. You see, if on one hand, if we only think about God's truth as this incomprehensible mystery, we may never venture out to discover things about him. And an idea of a relationship with him might sound pointless. And if we only think of God as knowable, we may think just because we went to Sunday school for a few times when we were a kid and we got baptized that we basically know everything there is to know about God. But he's so much more exciting than that. God is both incomprehensible and knowable. We're not left in the dark about who he is, and yet we never will have the potential to be bored with him. We'll spend an eternity growing in our knowledge of him. Number four, and this is probably the most important, we can know God personally. We can know God personally. You know, there's a big difference between knowing about someone and actually knowing them. A big difference. God is not offering us a knowledge about him only. He's also offering us a knowledge of him. Um, I, I, I know my, I don't want to get in my childhood, but I'll, I'll just give this one, one example of this. Um, growing up, my hero was Sylvester Stallone. You can do with that what you will. I know he made a lot of terrible movies in the 90s, and all, it all fell apart after that. But when I was a kid, I thought he was just the coolest guy ever. I knew a lot about him, like a, f- a freakish amount of factoids and random things about Sylvester Stallone. So, uh, just a few weeks ago, I was with, we were with one of our friends at, at, at the house, and uh, he told me 
that he saw Sylvester Stallone in an elevator but didn't talk to him. And I thought, oh, why would you waste such an opportunity? I, it, it, I, was, I basically had to unplug for three or four days. It just devastated me. <laughs> but you get the difference. And I thought, man, I would have I killed to have that, op- not really, but I would have liked to have that opportunity when I was, you know, 10. Or even today, I, mean, I would still be pretty happy. Um, <laughs> but you get the difference, right? I know a lot about this person, probably way too much, but I don't know him because he would not recognize me. God is not just offering us a knowledge about him. He's offering us a knowledge of him. This is a real personal relationship. I know, this, I know this phrase, personal relationship, can just fall on flat ears because it's become Christianese, and we use it so much, but I, I want you to think about just how significant that is. That the God of the universe offers a personal relationship with him to us. My illustration is, a, is just a small and weak illustration of what it means to know God. But here's the point. God invites us not just to know things about him. He invites us to be in his family. I think a lot of us only have really half the story when it comes to our conversion. I think we only have half the story. Here's what I mean. And I think this really bears out in a lot of ways. When we think about our conversion and what was happening, happening spiritually when we believed on Christ, we imagine God the Father as a judge with a gavel, slamming it down, and saying about us, not guilty. Now, that's, that's part of the story, isn't it? I mean, that's the wonderful truth of justification. Not just that we've never sinned, but it's, it's as if we've never sinned, plus as if we've perfectly obeyed God and provided all this righteousness. That's amazing. But that's the first half of the story. Yes, God is the judge, the, the ultimate judge, the judge of our universe, of all he created, who slams the gavel down and says about us, if we know Christ, innocent. But that's not where it stops. The judge then takes us home and adopts us and becomes our father. A lot of us forget about that second part of the story. And it'll show up in different ways. We may think, yes, God... God owes me, you know, uh, uh, he owes me forgiveness of sin, or at least he gives me forgiveness of sin. I'm technically on good terms with him. I don't have to go to hell. I got out of that. Okay, we're good. No, there's so much more to your relationship than God with that. He is your father who didn't just adopt you out of some sort of legal obligation, but to have an eternal relationship with you that started at your conversion. It doesn't start when you die. It continues into your death. It starts now, here. In our messy, broken world, he wants to know us. So we hear him through his word. We don't just read the Bible because spiritual leaders in our lives have told us we should read the Bible or because that's what they do in the 1950s movies or because our parents told us to. We read scripture because as we're reading scripture, we are hearing our father talk to us through scripture. This is why we pray, not just because other Christians pray or people expect us to pray, not just in case someone asks us at church, hey, have you been praying? No, we pray because we're actually talking to someone who wants to hear us, miraculously so. 
The Father loves us personally. The Son is literally interceding for us right now, personally. The Spirit is with us and comforts us and convicts us personally because we are in a relationship with God. The more we fear the Lord, the more we will want to press on to know him. And the more we press on to know him, the more we will fear him. I want to give you maybe just a couple practical examples and we'll be finished. To, to commit to growing in the knowledge of God would maybe change a, a couple of our habits. I hope it would change our habits. It may change how we come to church. There's a lot of things going on in our minds when we're coming to church. Um, we need to be conscious of other people, obviously. We need to be ready to encourage others to listen to them, to bear their burdens, as Pastor Tyler talked about on Sunday. But you know, one of the things we can do as we come to church, maybe on the, on the, the drive here when we walk in, is we can think, what am I going to learn about God today in the sermon? And it may not be something new. It may not be a broadening. It may be a deepening, right? You walk away from the sermon and you think, what, what was I reminded about God? It, it affects even how you sing in our corporate worship. As you're singing, you think to yourself, what does this song, what is this song saying about God? Uh, what is this, what truth about God is this song that I'm singing reminded me of that I may have forgotten had I not been here singing it? That's a way to think about music, not just critiquing who's up here or, or, or the lyrics or maybe how someone beside you is singing or not singing or singing too loud or singing too quietly or on key or not. You could think, what is this saying about God? It would change, it really could completely change your Bible and prayer life. And actually, maybe it, this may be an antidote to an absence of a Bible and prayer life, if you think about it. See, a lot of us, um, if, you're, if you're not consistent in your devotions, or your, your quiet time, or your personal time with the Lord, whatever you call it, you may think, my biggest need is just to have, uh, is just to have more consistency. Right? And yet, and yet, you may be the, the very kind of person who doesn't miss appointments with other people. So if somebody wants to meet you at 9.30 for breakfast, you're there. Somebody says, hey, come into my office at 4 o'clock, you're there. Uh, somebody invites you over to your house, you make it. Your problem is, that, is not that you don't have discipline or consistency. You do. You're just not looking at your prayer and Bible reading as a personal meeting with someone, which is why you're not doing it. That could, that could change it. One of my, one of my all-time favorite... Uh, pastors and writers, Eugene Peterson, every day on his calendar, he would literally put this on his calendar. He had an hour slot that said, meet with God. He did that because otherwise he may not have done it. It may not be too bad of an idea for us to follow. Here's another way. Be on the lookout for God's fingerprints in your life. This really is our assignment if you look at the uh, spiritual exercise in your handout. Be on the lookout for God's fingerprints. Uh, the, the, the exercise I've given you is called Visio Divinum. A lot of people haven't heard of it. They've heard of, you know, holy reading, but not holy seeing. And some, in fact, some of you, you look at that in your handout and you're freaked out. You're thinking David's bringing something weird into the church. Well, it's not weird. Here's all it means. It, it means, it's, it's kind of like if you've ever done a gratitude journal, 
Maybe some of you have. It's just really, really great practice. It's very similar to that. Here, here's what this practice means. You, you keep a, either a physical journal or you could use your phone or your, your iPad or whatever you use to take notes. And every time something reminds you of God, you jot it down. Do that for seven days. And, and it may be something like if you have a cross in your living, and you look at the cross and you think about Jesus. I mean, that would be a, a pretty typical example. Not a bad example. Hey, if that's what you have, start there you will be surprised at how often you recognize gifts from God if you're just trying to pay attention for them. This doesn't mean you're, you're writing some sort of paper on an attribute of God or putting together a sermon. No, no, no. There's all kinds of ways to know God that don't take that shape. And looking out for his fingerprints, looking for ways that he's working in your life is a great example of that. You're, you're growing in the knowledge of him, a personal knowledge of him by recognizing all the different ways that he is at work in your life. Here's really my final question for you tonight. It's just this. In light of the statement in Jeremiah 9, in light of the fact that God says that the one thing in life to glory in is the person who understands and knows him, ask yourself this. Is pursuing the knowledge of God really the most important thing in my life right now? Can I say this with a clean conscience God is my witness that growing in the knowledge of God is more important to me than anything else. Now you say, well, that's, that's kind of a dramatic thing to say. It, well, it is. And, you know, we don't say that after every sermon because not every biblical truth calls for it. That's why I feel like there's no way that the sermon you know, can't be kind of a letdown in some ways because of what we're talking about, just how incredible it is. But ask yourself that question, is knowing God more important to me than anything else? The more we fear the Lord, the more we will want to press on to know him. And the more we press on to know him, the more we will fear him. Let's all stand.